All right, welcome back to another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we get to introduce you to the phenomenal author, otherwise known as Ben Stevens. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to our audience? I will certainly try. Um, I'm a fairly new writer. Um, I tried publishing books myself a few years ago and um, didn't really have a, a lot of traction. And I was fortunate enough to uh, attend a conference in, in Las Vegas a couple of years back and uh, I met some people and Athon uh, Books picked up my, my debut book and then um, allowed me to continue that series that never took off. And, and so now it has become uh, the Invasive Species series, uh, four book series. Right now there's only three out. Um, and then I also managed to uh, uh, run a, a, a Facebook page for an author that I greatly admired, um, Richard Fox, whom I also met at that conference and um, had, had, had a little talk with and I managed to uh, collaborate with him and his universe on a couple of books as well. And so it's, it's been an awesome year and I'm hoping to, uh, to keep, the, keep it going because I, I really enjoy um, what we do. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a geek myself. I have been my entire life. And uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a job where I'm, I work all over the world. Right now I'm in the Middle East and uh, it gives me a lot of downtime. Uh, and in that I feel that time by, by pulling out my laptop and, and working on these, uh, these crazy daydreams right? that we tell stories. What, uh, what year did you go to the, uh, the writers convention in Vegas? Um, it was the last one that actually happened because uh, 2019, 20, 2020 okay. was canceled. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The um, the second part of the introduction, dear listener and viewer, is uh, is how we first found them. And so, uh, I actually first found Ben through his work with uh, with Richard Fox because when they were setting up the fan page, since I set the Galaxy's Edge one up, he reached out and said, "Hey, how do we do this thing on Facebook?" So, so I helped them uh, get that going so they could do it, and uh, I still post there periodically. And it's a fun group, so if you haven't checked out the Ember Wars fan club, you should totally do it. Lots of uh, inappropriate jokes about mechs when everyone knows that infantry is the, the best. But you know, <laughs> we forgive them. Don't call them tanks. Don't call them tanks, Crunchy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now we get to ask you the most important question, and it decides the, the tone and tenor of this interview. Are you going to get to stay? So the religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly, hands down. Absolutely, Firefly. Now, if you'd asked me when I was ten or twelve years old, I would have said Star Wars. But now it's it's, um, I've 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 left church and I I found I found redemption in Firefly, Captain Mel. All the way. Yeah, I used to, I used to really dig Star Wars back when all the books still counted that I loved, like Rogue Squadron and, and all of that. Yeah, Timothy's and then on, Disney bought it. And they just crapped all over us and said you don't count anymore. And I'm like, eh, okay, whatever. Same. You do you. Same so I uh, I do I do still have some nostalgia for what was, but not enough to keep spending money on what is. Couldn't so, say it better. All right, now because we're polytheistic here, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Potterverse. Okay, so the Potterverse has never done anything for me. It's just it's just not my my, my thing. But um, I don't think it's fair to really compare Tolkien to Game of Thrones. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings is. Uh, 
it's in a class by itself. It's to be admired, worshipped, studied like 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 a holy book, the Bible itself, if you will. Um, I would even learn Greek to to study the original. I mean, that's that's where Tolkien's at. But if I'm just in the mood for some for some fun, I do love me some Game of Thrones, especially the show, not so much the books. I know this is a podcast about books, but I love the actors. I love the banter. I know they kind of crapped the bed in the last couple seasons, but I, I enjoyed it. I tuned in every week, and I, I found it very fun and thrilling, enjoyable. Okay. So uh, we are um, – because the Blasters and Plays podcast, we like both the fantasy and the sci-fi um, we, we sort of rebranded to cover that. So which is, was your first love though? Was it the sci-fi or was it fantasy? It was definitely sci-fi. It was definitely sci-fi. Uh, as a, I mean, I can't remember a time that sci-fi wasn't part of my world. Um, I had discovered fantasy a little later in middle school with the Dragonlance books and, and the Forgotten Realms okay. books and Dungeons and Dragons. Sci-fi to begin with. Okay. Um, did you ever read any of the fantasy choose your own adventure books that were out there? Yeah. Oh yeah. I loved them. Loved yeah. them. I, I even got the weird ones, you know, like for Easter. Cause I, I was into them so much. My, so when my parents would give me an Easter basket, it would have the, the Easter bunny choose your own adventure, which was like, ah, you know, it's like for me, I don't know about you or yourself or, or anybody that's listening, but there, there's people who can completely escape into any kind of fantasy, but then there's people like me, and I have to be able to kind of relate to the fantasy. I want to be able to project myself into it. So, like, my brother, he loved Super Mario, but I was more of a Legend of Zelda guy because I never really enjoyed the idea of myself being this, you know, Italian plumber jumping around in a cartoon world. I wanted to be the guy with the sword and the shield who gets the girl, you know? Yeah, I was always about that lone wolf, the uh, the fantasy sort of almost Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. crawl kind of thing. Yeah. I had all, I passed them on to my sons too because I still had all of them. You can't get those anymore, sadly. You get the character sheet in the back of the book. Yeah, and then you, you could get and print them online and then track it that way. And of course, we never cheated because cheating never, you know, cheaters never prosper or something. Love never looked ahead. Ah, love it. <laughs> So um, what is it about the the wide world of speculative fiction that you love? Oh, man. I, uh, you know, I mean, just that, I mean, I like I to think of it's kind of corny, but that like, I think it's a, uh, uh, it's a quote that you see on one of these memes floating around Facebook, you know, just like, I don't know if I remember if it was, uh, I don't remember who said it, but to paraphrase them, it's just that, you know, in speculative fiction in any medium, whether it's a, a book or a video game, uh, or a show or something like that. You can find all the things that as a child you believed would be in this world. And you be, you know, you grow up and you you can become disillusioned or or you can become you can come to peace with it or you can enjoy a healthy dose of spec fic, you know, and, and that's your that's your escapism, that's your outlet, that's your uh reminds you, puts you back in connection with the things that filled your heart and mind twenty four seven as a young child. Yeah, when I was younger, I thought um, um, quicksand was going to be a lot bigger problem in the world than it turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> that was Absolutely. the plot of almost Bermuda every kid stuff. Bermuda Triangle? I mean, I was definitely going to figure that one out, you know? I was on my bucket yeah. list. Mine too. So uh, what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction as, as a genre? Was it watching a certain show, reading a book, playing certain games? Well, kind of like like going back to like the sci-fi question. It's like I honestly can't remember a time when when some sort of 
science fiction wasn't part of my my, my, my reality. I can't remember a time earlier than that. It was, it's always there. It was always there. I mean, I grew up on Empire Strikes Back, and I could sing the theme song to the Star Blazers cartoon before I get before I knew the words to Jingle Bells. You know, it, it was just <laughs> I always had a toy, and I would take it in the backyard, and you know, I, at night when my parents made me go to bed, my my bed was a spaceship, and I would tuck myself in and pretend I was flying to Planet Zuby and. You know, I mean, it was just, it was always there, dude. Always. So how did your love of speculative fiction translate, uh, transition into writing stories? Okay. In that field? Well, I mean, as a kid, you know, you, you tinker with stuff. I remember I still have some, some, you know, homework assignments. Um, uh, my, my mom was cleaning up my uh, deceased grandfather's uh, den and found something I typed up on his typewriter about some guy with a sword and stuff and sent it to me. And so I always tinkered with stuff like that, but, all right. Sorry about those technical difficulties. We asked the same question a couple times because his Wi-Fi at the hotel was was kind of sketchy. But uh, I'm cutting that out, and so when you jump back in, there'll be a little bit of a of an oddity. So we re-asked the question, but this was a great interview, so we we did what we had to do. Slap that duct tape on that production, and we rock on. All right. So. How did your love of the speculative fiction genre transition into you writing stories in that that wild imaginative space? Okay, that's a fair question, and it's kind of a complicated one because I mean, as as a, as a young child, I tinkered with writing stories, whether it was just for fun or for homework assignments or whatever. But I never really, you know, was like I'm going to be a writer or anything like that. I just enjoyed my imagination and expressing it. And then as I, you know, got older, that kind of um, took it took shape in different forms you know whether i you know enjoyed video games or whatever um but but for the most part i was i got busy working and raising children and and you're getting married and all the things that life throws at you but throughout all that i always um i always gamed i always had a table i was always the dungeon master and i always managed to find a, a group of people that wanted to you know bring some chips and dice and have a good time and so that was always there and then at one point not too long ago, I'm going to say maybe six years ago, I realized that um, writing a book takes about the same amount of work for me as, as creating a campaign and managing a campaign. But if I write a book, the player characters do what I want them to do. And so I just got, <laughs> I got excited with, with you know, like, you know, a story that people can appreciate and not just, you know, completely trounced by deciding they want to, you know, be the, a dragonborn halfling infernal, you know, nimwit with a, I mean, I just couldn't take the backstories anymore. I said, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself and I'm going to start writing books. And, uh, and I said, so that's where I, that's how I got there. So what, um, what camp or what system did you play? Oh, you name it, brother. You name it from Dungeons and Dragons to all its iterations, all its different additions to the spinoff Pathfinder to everything White Wolf ever created, everything Palladium ever made, GURPS, um, oddball indie stuff you know i mean just you name it there's there's no no end to to what i haven't dabbled in so one of these days are you going to transition and write some games yeah i i don't think so i think i would rather um find um some awesome success as a writer and then have somebody make the game of my books for me <laughs> <laughs> that's the dream so uh many right? authors have their own real world experiences uh, influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments for you that shaped you as a storyteller? 
Yeah, I, I would have to say, I mean, I can't say a specific moment, but a specific uh, uh, thing. And that, that is, you know, the, the, my job overseas. Um, I've been working overseas for about eight years now, and I've traveled all over the world, met all kinds of different people. And, you know, whether it's walking down a country road, um, you know, somewhere in Africa or, or sitting offshore on a platform during a thunderstorm and listening to ghost stories from people who believe in ghosts, literally, you know, and voodoo and, and all the kinds of stuff that I spent. I spent about four years in West Africa and I've spent the last year and a half, uh, the last year here in the Middle East. And uh, I, I've been all over Europe and, and Canada and the United States and uh, Central America as well. And, and learning about the different cultures and meeting the different people. And it just sparks my imagination. So there's a lot of actual places in, and foods that I've eaten and stuff that find their ways into my book. Do you think that uh, experience with more cultures than the average, say, American gets to experience um, affects when you write like alien races and uh, even if they're human on other planets, but when you write other cultures, do you think that helps? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Because that's, yeah, uh, that's the one I think, I think Americans tend to get a little too uh, isolated and they realize that they don't always realize their experience isn't the rest of the world's experience. And uh, walking mm. the streets of a third world country sort of smacks you in the face with that reality pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and you realize that your experience is a little bit sheltered compared to the rest of the world. So It absolutely is. And, and, and it actually encouraged me, you know, like I, re I remember coming back from my first hitch in, in uh, Angola and um, my son, bless his heart, I love him. He's a great kid. He's, he's probably the best man I know. But I was noticing, you know, like that I'd failed him in, in some sense that he was, you know, had, had lived a spoiled kind of sheltered life. And I was like, I vowed at that moment that we were going to take a vacation um, somewhere once a year. And it wasn't always going to be comfortable. We weren't going to stay in resorts and stuff. We were going to get the, the go off the beaten path. I wanted him to see more of the real world. And uh, I, I fulfilled that promise. That's a good idea. So speaking of uh, the real world, um, you were in the United States Army. So we ask all authors this who are also veterans. Uh, but how do you feel like your time in the big green weenie affects the stories you tell? You know, not too much, really. I mean, um, for me personally, what I got out of my, my, my time in the Army was, um, you know, like self-improvement. I mean, I was happy to serve um, and, and happy to be part of a team. And, you know, I have some, some memories there that might be affecting me subconsciously, but really what I got out of it was my self-improvement and realizing that I can, I can do more than I ever thought possible. But as far as like military structure and whatnot, I'm not really a hard line military sci-fi writer. Um, and you, you can even look at like one of the, I was fortunate enough to get a, a decent review by a guy who normally reads hard military sci-fi. And he picked up invasive species, and he and he says right in the view this in the review this was not what I expected, but I liked the ride. It was fun. Um, my military, yes, I mean, there's my, my publisher. Uh, they're really good at what they do. Uh, marketed this series as military sci-fi, and it does have a military aspect to it, especially in the first book. Not so much in books two and three, but it's really marketing. And because I mean, my military structure in these in this series is not so much based on my experience in the real world but it's more based on like um the 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 anime that i consumed 
in mass quantities growing up, right? You know, the, the Skull Squadron going to go off and fight the Zentradi, right? Or 15th ATAC, hover tanks, blah, blah, blah. It was just, you know, the men and women of, of Earth getting in their mechs and, and beating up the bad guys. And so I have that aspect to the story, but it not I'm not really following it based on on any memory of my service. It's a little loose. Okay, I, you know what I mean? I do. I think sometimes people overthink what makes the military because they think, oh, it's got to be that dress right dress, U.S. Marine Corps, pretty uniforms, flying flags, et cetera. And they forget right. that militias exist too. Um, you know, ad hoc units that sort of form together. I mean, like I would argue that the unit in Wolverines, the Red Dawn, like that, that yeah. was a military unit. Yeah. I mean, they weren't traditional military. They weren't an organized military, but they were certainly engaging in military action as an organized unit for the chain of command. And so I think people sometimes overthinks it as long as it's, even, you know. Even to go back to my yeah. Robotech example, if you look at the last iteration of, of what Harmony Gold did, combining three different animes into Robotech, the, the, the new generation, right? It was a, a, a ragtag group of misfits that were banded together by one one actual soldier who found like this, this guy, this a farmer boy and a biker girl, you know, and then he, he trained them to help him achieve his mission. So do you ever actually, when you write, draw on people that you knew when you were in the army? No, no, I don't. Okay. Did you, uh, did you ever forward deploy or were, was your time uh, more tranquil than that? My time is extremely tranquil. Um, I was in, <laughs> believe it or not, I enlisted in 1995, and um, I discharged in 2001, August of 2001, one month before 9-11. Okay. Okay. So I uh, I remember when I enlisted in 98, CNN did a special that world peace might finally be attainable. <laughs> Boy, did they get that one wrong. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a different time when, when I went in as you were, you know, in the process of getting out so right and my little, um, my little brother was getting in right as i was getting out my little brother went to uh he went to iraq and, and participated in, in in desert storm and all that you know iraqi freedom um so yeah. he, he was over there he was the united states marine and he still, maybe still is but you know he's he's not he's just not in the he's not in the core anymore he's now uh like a um a director for emergency response in the government that's a honorable work. So we've talked about how your time in the military did or did not affect you as a as a storyteller, but now we're going to ask how it affects you as a consumer. So does your time in the service affect the kind of stories you engage with as a reader? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't I don't know. I never actually thought about that. Maybe it does on a subconscious level. I enjoy military sci-fi. I like reading it. I really liked um, you know, Rick Partlow's like drop trooper series. And I, I fell in love with the Ember War series and, and, uh, that's the stuff I enjoy reading. And, um, when I write, I, I, you know, I certainly try to, I wouldn't say emulate, but I mean, they, you know, they inspire me, uh, and I, I can, okay, this is a good idea. And, you know, I like what they did here and especially the, the team stuff, you know, cause like, I think one of the key aspects of, of military sci-fi is that it's not always about an individual. It's, it, it's about a team and how the team works together um, and comes together like Voltron to become something stronger than any one of them are by themselves. And I enjoy the banter and the dialogue uh, of the teamwork and, and stuff like that. So um, if, if a military sci-fi writer is doing that kind of stuff, um, that's what I enjoy. But I don't know that that's directly related to any anything that I did in the Army. I think it's just what I enjoy. 
Okay. So transitioning from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So have you gotten any cool uh, fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters uh, yet? Yes. And let me see if I can show you without – how do I show you this without uh, – Just hit the share or... screen and it should pop up. Um, okay. Okay. Share screen. And uh, are you seeing what I'm seeing now? Nope. All right. Hold on. You send it to me. I will pop that up. So while uh, while you say that, I am going to um, pull that up for people. So if you could just tell the story and I will get it up there. Okay. So um, a, one reader and his, and his kids uh, made this uh, helmet for me um, based on based off of the uh, original cover of, of what invasive species was um, when it, when I self, when it was, when it was first published by a different, different company uh, back in oh, 2018, something like that. Two years before Athon picked it up. Um, and it, it's really kind of cool. It's, it's, it's really well built and it's got a battery inside of it. And you can actually turn on, the uh, there's two different lights. There's a LED flashlight, and then there's a red laser light that um, both are functional. And you I, you can put the helmet on; it fits great. Um, in fact, that next picture to your right will show you with the light on. Okay, let me get that up then. Yeah, it's the next one right there. Yeah, and you see, it's actually functional, and it's I just was completely blown away by that. Um, that somebody, you know, him and his kids um, made that, and it's, I'm like, wow. And of course, the the poor guy. Uh, I was thanking him and all this kind of stuff, and it wasn't even, I don't know, four or five months later that I announced that the uh, uh, out of print book had been uh, picked up by Athon with a new cover and a new title. And he wrote, um, he responded to that Facebook post. He said, "New cover." <laughs> I said, oh, I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a great helmet, but yeah, it's gonna. It's not gonna look that way on the new cover. So the um, if they follow you on the social medias, which we'll link to at the end of the um, the end of the episode, will they be able to see the old cover? Just so um, they can sort of compare the two. Is that something that you you share? I mean, obviously you've rebranded, but is that something right. you, could, you could share on your your author page? Yeah, it's it's still there. I haven't really posted much on my author page because I've rebranded and I'm in the process of, of of getting it, you know, everything set back up. I have to make a new website and I haven't done that yet. And I need to start a new uh, newsletter and I haven't done that yet. And it's been a rocky year for everyone with COVID and whatnot. And I've got a bunch of other um, things going on in my life that have kind of made me not be able to put as much energy into the uh, the website social media aspect of writing. I'm just trying to uh, get the manuscript written at this point and uh, let my publisher take, do, do the, the heavy lifting. And uh, I promise everyone I will get a new website up here shortly and uh, a new Facebook page and, and all that good stuff. But it, unfortunately I haven't had the, uh, I haven't made the time to do it. Uh, I've got too many other fish in the uh, fish in the fryer right now. So how about this? If they subscribe to your newsletter at some, when you get that back up and going, you can share the old cover with the helmet. And if that way, if anyone's curious, they just got to follow you and join your newsletter. Yeah, there you go. So um, 
has anyone asked for your autograph while you're out in public? No, no, no one has. Um, uh, not really, no, because I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm even close to that well known. Um, but um, within, uh, you know, my the circle of of people that you know that I that do know me, um, a fellow, I got a phone call just a couple of months ago from a guy I worked with five years ago. Uh, we haven't spoken in in years, you know. I I know who he is, and and you know, but I haven't spoken to him in ages. Well. He found my phone number somehow and, and called me up out of the blue and said, hey, um, you got a second? I said, sure. And he said, uh, my son wants to talk to you. I said, okay. And it turns out that he bought the, this book, Invasive Species, for his 12-year-old son. He, he saw me post it on Facebook, and he bought it for his 12-year-old son. And his son, uh, you know, he had told his son, I know this. I know the author. I know the guy who wrote this book. And so he was getting some points there with his kid. And um, – the kid was like, can I, can I talk to him? And he, this, it was so cool because like 12 years old was like when it really took off for me, that's when I discovered Dragonlance and that's when I discovered Robotech and Forgotten Realms and Dungeons and Dragons. And that was like the, a very pivotal age for me. And so like this kid was on fire and he was calling me up on the phone and asking me, so what, what is John's power this? And, and what happens to the robots that? And it was, he could just tell he was excited. And I was like, wow, wow like that was such a high for me like you don't get that from too many readers and it was just it, i know it came through a co-worker and this and that but i'm not dismissing it at all it just i was high on that for a month bud definitely understand so have you seen anybody out in public reading your books no i haven't um i've given i've given away i had a box full of copies of the old book that was that's out of print and i've given them away to, to people i meet in parks and you know businesses and stuff i said hey i have a book um but back um uh, back when when the debut novel first came out there was a, a trend going around that started on my facebook page where everyone was taking pictures of themselves reading it and then they were sending it to me and i collected these pictures and i made a mural of the cover, just like those like pictures you see of political figures or whatever. And if you zoom in on each pixel, it's a picture of something, right? Yeah. So it was like all the pictures of people reading my book. And then you can use an, a, a computer algorithm to organize it to where the colors will match the actual cover of the book. And so I made a copy of the cover oh, of the cool. book. Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. That was, that's the closest I've come to seeing anybody read my stuff in public. Now, you travel the world because of your job and so you tend to probably encounter a lot more non-english speaking readers than the average joe so do you plan at some point of getting this translated into other languages so you can keep the train rolling when you're uh when you're overseas you know i do and i i do um i would especially I, now obviously i don't know if if, if, if athon's going to go for it with this series or whatnot but um at some point, I would like to pursue um, getting books published. If for no other reason than this, I, my, uh, my, I'm currently in a relationship with somebody who's not from America, and uh, she, um, she can read English, but I would really like to see my my stuff written in her native language, and uh, and you know her friends all know that I'm a writer and this and that, but they're all intimidated to to pick up a book in English. So, you know, and I've been following guys like. Um, best-selling author Craig Martell, who's just put out a, a thriller book in German, and he's having great success at it. And it's like, that's very inspirational kind of stuff. And and um, I would definitely like to, to add that to my repertoire at some point, you know? Yeah. 
Um, I think Jonathan Brazy, who Brazy, I'm never sure how to say his yeah, name. Yeah. He's a former yeah. Marine turned author. I think he's done some foreign language translations as well. So it's definitely something that I think would be cool. There's no other reason to say you've got it on your shelf. And then yeah, you can read it in German and, and fake it out or whatever language and pretend like, you know, you can read those languages because you know what it said in English. <laughs> right. And I'll t I got to tell you, too, I mean, he's not, spec well, I guess he is spec pick, but he's not blasters and, and you know, and, and, and swords and, you know, blades or anything like that. But uh, have you ever heard of the Japanese writer uh, Haruki Murakami? I have. Okay. So you, you're familiar, he writes magical realism. And and drama, right? Uh, dramatic literature and magical with a touch of magical realism, almost kind of like a Studio Ghibli, Neil Gaiman kind of, you know, something slightly off. There's a little bit of magic afoot, but it's also very heartbreaking and, and, and poignant. And his books have been published in, I don't know, 30 something different languages. And I can pick up a book that's obviously not written in Japanese. It's written in English. And the prose is some of the most amazing stuff I've ever read in my life. Uh, it just pierces right into you, like cuts into your soul. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can you do this with a translation? That's amazing to me. So, I mean, whoever's doing this, they're doing a good job. And so hats off to them. Yeah. So finally, what's the funniest or weirdest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Obviously, we try to keep this a family-friendly show. Oh, okay. Well, um, I can't think of anything – too family friendly uh, that, that that is funny about that. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll have to tell you offline about what I was going to tell you. <laughs> fair, but, fair um, enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can't think so, of anything too too funny, man. Um, all right. Well, then man. this is this is where we will do the um, um, the highlights reel of everything you've written. So, can you give us the rundown of your body of work? Okay, sure. Um, now, Invasive Species is, while it's also one of the most um, recent books, it's, it, it is a reincarnation of my debut book. Um, and its sequels are new, never been printed before. So there's all three of those right now, uh, books one, two, and three. Um, then I've done the uh, Pathfinder novels with Richard Fox in his Ember War universe. And, those are good, uh, by the way. You should check them out. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, those, are, in fact, "Light the Way" was probably is probably my favorite book out of my uh, out of the books I've written right now. I, was, I, I really like that book. That's my cry book. So, uh, other than that, those are my only complete novels at the moment. There's all five of those. Um, I have a collection of short stories, uh, horror stories, uh, based on the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. Uh, that's on Amazon. It's self-published, and basically, it's just a when I first started learning how to be a real writer, you know, like not just toying around, but like trying my best to understand the craft and getting to know other people and following classes and discussions on Facebook and, and putting in the work on the, you know, in the chair on the keyboard. Um, I, I got my feet wet by writing short stories for open calls. And then um, as the years went by, I got the, the rights to those stories returned to me and I've, I've, combined them into a, a collection uh, called The Bardo of the Unquiet Mind, and then I self-published that. Self so it's just, just the five books in that collection of stories right now. Okay. So those all sounded fascinating, but as you can see by the cover, which is covering the fact that his Wi-Fi doesn't support even an avatar, 
Uh, we're going to talk about invasive species. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How'd you come up with it? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, uh, bad food when you were trying from the local vendors? It's a good question. And I think you're going to like the answer, bud. It's actually, it is, it is, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of first time writers think that the first thing that they're going to write is going to be their opus, right? And so they put everything into it. And this is an amalgam of a lifetime of playing tabletop role-playing games, video games, choose-your-own-adventure books, and all that stuff. But really, what this book and its sequels are, what the whole story is, is when I first started working in the oil field um, back in 2006, 2007, I spent a lot of time away from my family. And my son was quite young at that time. And... Uh, while I was gone to, to, to take care of the loneliness and the boredom and whatnot, I would start thinking of this story and, um, you know, start coming up with this idea, this universe of conflicts and bad guys, this and that, you know, a backstory and how I knew, I knew how it was going to end, I think, and all this kind of stuff. And when I came home, I would only have a couple days home, but I would spend every minute I had with my son. And so we did like a choose your own adventure bedtime story where I would just hang out with him and tell him the story where he was the character. And I would ask him like a role-playing game, what do you do? But he was too young for dice and paper and all that kind of stuff. So it was just a oral tradition kind of role-playing game that I did with my young son. And we would pick up, you know, I would make notes of where we stopped and I'd go back to work for a month. And then when I came home and we'd pick up where we left off and we did this for about a year and from beginning to end. And I even brought a tear to his eye once when it, when one of the uh, when one of the characters meets their fate in a in a bad way, right? No spoilers. And uh, and, and that's and that, and that's what this is is a, is a promise that I made to him that I was going to uh, immortalize this story in print so that he could read it to his children someday. That's awesome. So when you redid the when you re-released it with Athon, did you um, change anything about the first novel, or just uh, rebrand the cover and, and go from there? We we put another round of editing in it and made a few changes, but very minor. Just a, okay. a, my, a, a round, another round of editing, and then a new cover and a new title. Okay, so before we dig into the story itself, can we talk about this glorious cover that we're looking at? That's that is the screen right now. So how did the uh, how did you come up with this cover? Like, what's the story of this fine piece of modern art? Man, I can't take no credit for it. That is all J. Caleb Design uh, and my chance meeting with him at the same Twenty Books conference in Vegas. Um, I met him while I was talking to uh, a couple of other book uh, book cover uh, graphic artists designers. And uh, he just seemed like a really chill, cool cat. And he gave me his business card. And I was like, dude, I'm going to be in touch. And uh, I just told him, you know, he has a process where he basically asks you a few questions. And you answer the questions. And then, like, you just let him do his thing. And I was, I'm all about that. I don't want to tell him. I don't want to micromanage somebody who's an artist. Um, I did the same thing when I get a tattoo. I'm like, just do your thing, right? And, boy, he just kicked, kicked it out the park. I'm so pleased with it. And it really matches the, the story. And some covers don't match the story, and that bothers me. This one matches the story to a T. Okay. Sometimes uh, some of the best covers I've seen, at least that I've hired, uh, they came about when I just gave the vaguest of ideas. This is sort of what I was thinking. And then I let the artist be an artist uh, instead of trying to, to over-direct or side-seat drive, as you were. So yeah, they did. A, he did a good job. So I really dig it. Um, did he do the rest of the series as well? 
He did. He did. Outstanding. So how long after you saw this first cover did you uh, take to order this for your wall? You want to hear something sad, brother? Um, What's that? I have <laughs> about a month before this book debuted, um, a bunch of really bad stuff happened in my in my personal life, and I have not even had the opportunity to have a wall to hang the book on yet uh, or the money to buy it myself. I've been living out of oh, a suitcase. Sorry, well, then it's something that's got to be on your bucket list because that's some glorious art. Oh. So we'll move on yeah, to the story itself. Right <laughs> when I come and back, if your publisher's listening, if your publisher's listening, this would be a good gift for him. Um, so right? moving on to the book itself, uh, what would your 30 second elevator pitch for this novel be? Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. You ready? <clears throat> should I do a, I'm ready. Should I do a voice? In an unknown, yeah. In an unknown future, thirty years after a mysterious cataclysm, the last human refuge on Earth finds itself besieged by a plague of magical phenomena and alien invaders. When John, a soldier in humanity's last army, takes up arms against these invasive species, he has a fateful encounter with one of the enemy. He has thrust down a path that forces him to question everything he ever believed in and fought for. A collision course with his own destiny. All right. So if the uh, oil fields don't work out, you could always try your hand at narrating books. <laughs> so, so what is it? Yeah. So what is it that you think makes your series special? Well, I mean, I can't say that it's unique, but what I think is special about it is that it's science fantasy. Right. It, it, that's not a, something you can call it on Amazon, but it is science fantasy. It is really. Um, it's Final Fantasy-esque, right? You're going to have equal parts magic and technology blended seamlessly together. And ultimately, just like Final Fantasy X, which is like my favorite game in the franchise, if you strip away all the trappings, you strip away the mechs and the killer robots and the aliens and the magical powers and all this kind of stuff, you strip that all away, uh, what it is, it's, it's actually a love story. Right, it it is a it's a like star-spanned lovers kind of thing that takes all four books to to really come to its conclusion. But it is a love story, just like you know Yuna, the you know the the summoner who has to go and, and rid the world of sin, is protected by her guardians, and one of them you know and they and they develop feelings for each other. So that's to me is what it's about, and that's not, I know that's not for everybody who likes military sci-fi. But if you if you fall in love with the characters like I did for that video game that I just mentioned, it's going to be something that sticks to your ribs. You know, it, it is, it's just a, it's an epic love story in a science fantasy setting. That sounds intriguing. All right. So um, which science fiction or fantasy, because sometimes they do crossover tropes, do you feel like um, invasive species hits the best? Well, I think we just kind of covered that, you know, it's like it really is, it's going to be, um, that blend of, of magic uh, and, you know, the hand waviism, you know, it, it's, it certainly has its share of hand wavingism. It's, it's like the way I like to think about when I sit down and write this series is it's I'm writing prose. Yes. But, you know, like a lot of people, when they write or when they read, they, they picture the story in their mind. Right. And when I picture this story in my mind, I picture it as anim as Japanese animation. Right. So you you might have a really cool character like Lucy who is this cyborg lady 
you know, who looks like the uh, angel of death, right? She looks like a, the, the people the dress up for Dias de los Muertos, you know? And she's got the uh, uh, Aztec macuatles, right? The war clubs with the obsidian blades, but hers are high tech with neon lights on them and all this kind of stuff. And the guy shoots a bullet at her and she slices the bullet in half, right? And I'm picturing that like a, like a scene from Dragon Ball Z, right? I want the whirling background, you know, and the 20 foot jump in the air. So, you know, those are the, that's what I, that's what I'm, those are the beats that I'm trying to hit. Okay. Um, so we, we've discussed sort of that this is a military sci-fi book. Do you think it fits into any other genres or subgenres? Yeah, um, but I don't think they exist yet, right? Like that, I, that's why I had such a hard time launching it back before Athon picked it up because I, in a lot of ways, it's urban fantasy. But when, when we talk about urban fantasy, readers have an expectation that the urban in the urban fantasy is our world, the 21st century of Earth, right? But what if you took urban fantasy and projected it into the, you know, future? Like if you go to like the Blade Runner 2049 setting and then throw in that urban fantasy aspect, right? Anyone familiar with games like Shadowrun or Palladium's Rifts will understand what I'm talking about. Right, but I don't know how you. I don't know what you call it. Okay, so let's move on to the story itself. So, can you tell us a little bit about your main character and what makes him or her special in the crowded field of science fiction? Sure, um, John. So, I think what makes him special is that he doesn't really know who he is. I think the entire arc of the, of all four books, well, at least the first three, um, the ones that are out right now, are. Because the fourth one is he's already is more of like a redemption, but the 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 arc of the first three books is John trying to figure out who he is, who he really is, in more ways than one. I don't want to give away too much, but he literally doesn't know who he is, and he also figuratively doesn't know. Who he is. Okay. On one side, he's so, got this duty, the sense of duty and friendship, you know, but then there's something inside of him. That, he, that is pulling him that he doesn't understand and he has to go and figure that and, and reconcile those two halves of him. Okay. <clears throat> so were there any secondary characters that you liked that were especially memorable for, or fun for you? Well, there's, there's Maya who's a, uh, you know, like a pop idol, you know, like a, like going back to my inspiration of anime and stuff. She's, she's my min may. She is definitely a, uh, she's my Sharon Apple. She is, she is a pop idol in the full sense of the term. And she's also a major character, uh, next to John. Um, and of course her guardian, Lucy, the, the lady death cyborg that I just described who, um, is luck cool. Uh, Caleb did a great job putting her on the second cover. Um, and it, you can see that, yes, that is a cyborg. And yes, she also looks like a skeleton. So I, I just, she's, I, she's my girl. I love her. I even named my chihuahua after her. <laughs> okay. So um, does your story have any bad guys that the, uh, the character oh, has to confront? Other, other, obviously yeah. no spoilers because we want them to read the book. More bad guys. Besides, besides the, uh, you know, the ubiquitous, you know, aliens and demons and ghosts and things of that nature, we have probably more bad guys with names, making them more than just a walk-on character. You know, titled, charactered bad guys, we probably have more of them than we have good guys, you know, um, because um, when I when I first wrote this book, like a long time ago and then trashed it and rewrote it and then trashed it and rewrote that. 
because um, this was my debut, right? And, and it's, sometimes that's a long road. Um, I didn't realize that you, you know, I was thinking traditional publishing and you have to have, uh, uh, you know, I didn't understand that you had to have the, the book one needed to have a conclusion. I So everything changed. And so we have, you know, different villains showing up in different books. Uh, but then there's always this one in the background who's always there. And it's kind of like the final boss, right? You know, you got to work your way th through the different levels up to the final boss. Okay. So speaking of characters, uh, it, your authors tend to be very mean. Not quite um, – you don't sound like you're quite <laughs> at the George R. R. Martin level, but authors tend to be very mean to the characters. So if your characters ever met you in a back alley and they knew you were the author that put them through such torment, how do you think that interaction is going to play out? You know what I think? I think he would walk right up to me, and I think for a moment I would be a little nervous, and he'd look me straight in the eye, maybe put out his hand even, and he would tell me, thank you for helping me figure out who I am, and then I would tell him the exact same thing. Okay, that's deep. Uh, what about the uh, the cyborg? How is she going to handle things? A little different? Oh, yeah. She'd kick me in the, she'd kick me in the way, boss. Bendy Hill. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you could just make sure you add a little bit of line to her code that she can't destroy her creator or something. <laughs> that never no, goes she, bad in the movies. She's a mean girl, but she's she's actually one of my – she's got to be my favorite character, which is ironic because she's not the main character. And I actually pitched this to a traditional agent. He's like, well, we need to make her the main character. And I was like, no, it's just that's not the story, bud. Sorry. Maybe when I'm ready to market, but this was for my son. So – so do you think you'll ever write some other series in the universe where she might be the main character? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I think the story's got a, a finite end and a finite beginning, you know? Okay. So finally, uh, what can you tell us about the universe? In many series, the worlds where the story is told is as much of a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So can you give us a little bit of a hint of what we can expect from the world that you've created? Sure. Um, it's uh, if, if, if any readers or listeners are familiar with the games that I've mentioned, you're going to get a lot of that, right? It is, it is really uh, a lot of uh, uh, magic and, and weirdness in a world of high technology with a, you know, dash of post-apocalyptic thrown in there. Um, you, you're going to have mechs fighting giant leviathans. You're going to have uh, guys in power armor uh, taking out, you know, uh, ghost entities that can possess trash and form bodies out of, you know, detritus. And you're going to have a, a, a pop idol who's a secret terrorist and, you know, can sing songs and her songs are, or magic and it's the, the, her the in the invocations of her voice singing is how she casts her spells and um and, and ultimately just the setting itself i can't give it away it's a big big spoiler but halfway through book one it will be revealed that nothing you think about where the story is taking place is actually true it's taking place in a completely different place than you think it is and when you find out where they're actually at it's going to blow your mind Okay, um, so invasive series, a species, excuse me, is clearly part of a series. I know because it says so on the Amazons. Uh, there are currently three books out in this series, and you said a fourth one is on the way. Uh, so after that, is their story done? Will there be more from these characters? Or are you are you satisfied that you've you've run the the race with this this world? 
It'll be done. The fourth book will be the final book. And I actually, um, I apologize to everyone who's a fan or a reader that it isn't out yet. But like I said, 2020 was a, a bit of a curveball for everybody. Not to make excuses, but I am about halfway done writing the first draft right now. And I'm, I plan to finish it by the end of the year. And it'll be like, maybe we'll drop it uh, uh, as, you know, part of a box set or just drop it by itself and then immediately turn around and release the box set or something like that. But I definitely owe everyone the conclusion to this story, including my son. Yeah. The, uh, the, the suddenly becoming teachers with the homeschooling from 2020 was uh, a slowdown <laughs> yeah. for a lot of authors with young families. <laughs> yeah. And then you realize why you never wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so we we know that all literary universes, at least the good ones, have uh, internally consistent rules of science, technology and magic, if applicable. So what sort of tech or magic can we expect from these books? What sort of magic or tech, man, you you name it. But for, over the books, we've got, like I said, singing, singing goddesses that cast spells with their voice. We've got giant arcology cities like you can see in the background of of that cover there. It's a giant arcology, a city the size of a mountain. Um, you know, we've got nanomachines that turn humans into killer robots. You know, we've got tentacled demons. We've got ghosts. Uh, I mean, you name it, but it is, is literally, and then of course, you know, the, a military, a human military trying to fight this, this all at the same time. Uh, so of course, John's got his magic hammer there. You can see his magic hammer on the cover. So you, you, he's got his rifle, the standard issue fire, uh, what they call the lawnmower, and then he's got his magic hammer. So you see a little bit of, of the the meeting of the of the worlds there. It really is uh, like I like to tell people: it's Robotech meets Final Fantasy with a splash of Shadowrun. So that's what you can expect. Okay, so of all the tech that you invented or brought into your universe, which one would you want to have for your daily use? The hammer. The hammer. All right. How would you abuse that tech? Because I know if I had a lightsaber, I'd totally be doing horrible things with it. Oh, absolutely, brother. So, like, I would, from my day job, I think I would use the hammer to either, you know, I mean, I would, I would probably use it equally to 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 bang up the iron that I work on out on these drilling rigs, and then I would also take it with me to every single unnecessary meeting, so I could answer stupid questions <laughs> in a good. <laughs> Label it the complaint department. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. That's that's how you get things done. So does your with the title like invasive species? I in species. I think I know the answer. But does your universe have aliens in it? Yes. Yes, it does. What about fantastical creatures? Yes. In fact, then and so you we 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 ask the question without asking it directly. Like, you know what is what's the difference? Um, between a fantastical creature and an alien, right? So in a world where there's magic and, van, uh, and, and technology existing simultaneously, you know, and, and these, these species, these invasive species all come to the planet through like portals, right? They're called drops. And so they just magically appear on the world and, and it's becoming a problem, right? For what's left of humanity. And, you know, one creature might look like a blue skinned or blue scaled arachnid that's 20 feet tall um if you threw that in the in a dungeons and dragons setting that would be a fantastical creature but if you want to look at it from a science fiction point of view it's an alien now some of these creatures can do things like you know 
like like I said, they behave like as if they were ghosts or uh, look quite demonic and whatnot. But ultimately, they're they're all really aliens, right? But they can take on an appearance and function of a fantastical creature. So what kinds of uh, aliens slash fantastical creatures did you add to your book? And obviously, if it's a spoiler, you got to just tell us because, like I said, we want people to read the book. What types? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I literally those the examples I used were literally from the book. Um, so oh, like in, in, this, in this book one, you know, there's there's a creature they call the tectonic, and it's just a it's a it's a spirit you can't see, or a force, you know, it's a force or an entity or something that you can't see, but it possesses trash, and then uses the trash to form itself in a you know an invincible body. So you you're sitting there blasting holes in it, you know, and it's just reforming itself by sucking more trash off the ground. Right. Um, and it, it really gives the, the, the good guys a run for their money, you know, or there's like the, the things you see in the background here on the cover. Those are the Spartans. They're just a bunch of killer robots that have been sent to completely decimate the entire population. Um, the, the main villain, bad guy, alien kind of thing that spans the entire series are uh, like these weird creatures called harvesters. And um, they tend to go around they're kind of chimeric, you know, they're like somewhat nautical tentacles, lower half of their body, but a humanoid upper half of their body. And, you know, they, they have uh, these magic glass spheres that flash green energy at people. And they're, they just seem to be going around the entire planet, capturing as many living things as possible. And no one really knows why, what's the purpose behind the, the capturing of all these living souls. What's the big, you know, what's the end game. And just so you know, a little bit of all that. Okay, so when you do add these magical or alien creatures, how do you um, create them? Do you let nature inspire you, or do you just make something up out of whole cloth? A little, little bit of both, but I think one of the coolest things I did was um, back when I was actually managing my newsletter the way I'm supposed to be, um, I put out an, uh, an email asking readers to um, design an alien. All right, I said, it's a contest. I want you to design an alien, and whoever whichever I think is the coolest one, I'll give you a free copy of the book autographed and mail it to you. And, uh, and this one guy, uh, a reader named uh, Aaron came up with this really cool alien. And I've since used it not only in invasive species, but the alien also makes an appearance in the uh, Ember War Pathfinder books that I did with Fox. So I got to, put, I asked Richard if I could put some Easter eggs from my universe and his universe. And he was like, absolutely. So, and, and vice versa, there's actually a scene in book three of invasive species when two of the characters are picking up a book and admiring it. And the book, the name of the book is the uh, treatise on the battle of uh, Breitenfeld by uh, R. Fox. <laughs> okay. So a little, little, read that book. Little, yeah, little Easter book, little Easter eggs back and forth. Right. Okay, so clearly this interview is winding down, uh, and I know you've got places to be and worlds to conquer. But before we wrap this up, was there anything about invasive species that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us before we move on? You know, I I, I thought about that, and and um, not really. I mean, I think I think we've we've covered all the marks. I just you know I've expressed. Uh, I, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to to tell people what it's really like. You know, so they know what it what it's like versus what it what they might think it is. And uh, I want to thank everyone who's who's bought a copy. I want to thank everybody who's read a copy, left a review, and I want to thank my publisher 
Athon for for giving it a shot. And um, and I do want to say that you know it, it is every book can stand on its own to some extent, but it is a slow burn. I think the biggest reveal um, takes the entire series, at least takes all three books to you know the first three books to really understand. Like, oh, so like. You know, you just kind of have to take some of these things with a grain of salt. Like, okay, so why is what what is this storm? Why why, why is the world post-apocalyptic? And you don't really know that until the third book. Or like, you know, why is John having this weird thing going on? And all of a sudden, it makes sense. So there's like there's like a there's a there's small stuff that that is contained within each story. And then there's a larger slow burn thing going on. And so I really want to thank the readers that. Uh, that are buying the sequels for, for um, coming along for the ride, because the, to really get the full experience, you have to get the full experience. And, and then you're like, Oh, so it's not, I just can't put, I didn't put everything in, that I could in book one and then just regurgitate bad guys for, for, for the sequel. It's, it's really a story, one story that takes four books to tell. Okay, and if you haven't read it, this would be a good time where we can tell you that this is actually part of Kevin J. Anderson's Military Science Fiction Story Bundle that when you listen to this will be up for sale. It is um, part of a collection of about 10 other um, novels and then a couple of military sci-fi anthologies that Kevin J. Anderson edited um, that are available. And so if you want to check it out, um, you know, you'd be more than more than welcome to do it. You get a generally speaking a good deal. Um, you can um, set how much of the purchase price goes to charity, how much goes to the authors. You can sort of pick your price because it can go to charity as well. Uh, there is a minimum buy-in that's generally speaking about fifteen bucks. Uh, the the host gets to set that, and we're recording it before it went live, so I can't tell you that it's exactly what it's going to be. Um, but but you can you know support the authors, support some charities. Get a bunch of books cheaper than you could if you bought them all individually, and and if military sci-fi is your jam, man, I would I would highly recommend you check that out. So before we, we shut the lights and roll up the uh, the sidewalks, uh, Ben, can you tell us how listeners can find you? I th right now, I think the best way to find me, uh, as corny as it is, is just go to Amazon and follow me, follow my author. You know, click on my name. You go to the title of this book, click on my name, and then follow. Every time uh, something is published or is about to be published, um, you will receive an email, and uh, and you can you can find every one of the books in my in my library uh, right there on that on that author page, and you will get automatic emails from Amazon. Uh, unfortunately, or you can find me on Facebook. Just look up Ben Stevens, um, and um, but that's going to be a little bit more difficult, eh? Right. So I think for now, the best way to find me is just to go to Amazon and follow me. Okay, and you can find us, dear listener, on our website, anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. We're on Twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. We promise we check it at least once a year. Uh, we have a Blasters and Blades Facebook group, which is facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast, where we host all of the shenanigans and uh saska posts all the inappropriate uh pineapple pizza memes um truly that heresy <laughs> will get smited one day uh you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley put it in the comments that it's for the podcast and it will be so allocated and um 
You can also support the show over at Anchor FM with a monthly subscription, some of, something similar to what uh, Patreon does, if you're familiar. Um, no pressure, though, but it does help keep the lights on and the coffee brewing. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.